Good evening and welcome to Ideas. I'm Paul Kennedy with the final program in our series on Ivan Illich. We have to engage in the asceticism which makes it possible to savor now-ness and here-ness. Here is a place. Here is that which is between us, as the kingdom is. In order to be able to save what remains in us of sense, of meaning, of metaphor, of flesh, of touch, of gaze. Throughout this five-hour ideas series, Ivan Illich has spoken about what modern Western people have lost during the era whose arc he traces from the 12th century to our own time. The origin and source of this age, he believes, has been the Roman Catholic Church. My kingdom, Jesus had said, is not of this world. But from the Middle Ages onward, the Church attempted to build an earthly Christian order, reinforcing faith with power in an attempt to regulate charity, guarantee hope, and ensure salvation. And this attempt, which Illich calls the corruption of Christianity, has been the model for the major institutions of modern life. All of these institutions, of medicine, law, education, politics, and economy, promise a state of blessedness which can only be understood if one sees that this promise was originally underwritten by Christian faith. But the age which was dominated by the Church and its secular descendants is now giving way to a new age, the age of systems, Illich claims. This watershed is his subject tonight, as he addresses the character of this new era and the renunciations he thinks will be necessary to live with hope in this new time. Both in how he has lived and how he has spoken publicly during a career of nearly 50 years, Ivan Illich has taken his stand outside of modern assumptions. His denunciation of the modern has been so passionate and his critique so penetrating that many have thought of him as a prophet, a voice of one that cries in the desert, like the prophets of old. But Illich gently sets aside this name, preferring, he says, the vocation of the friend. I think that the vocation which I try to exercise, by which I try to live, one would rather than call it prophetic, call it friendly. The time of prophecy lies behind us. The only chance lies in our taking this vocation as that of the friend. This is the way how hope for a new society can spread. And the practice of it is really not through words, but essentially through little acts of foolish renunciation. Ivan Illich's vision of friendship and foolish renunciation in the Age of Systems is part five of The Corruption of Christianity by David Cayley. Twelve years ago, 
In the fall of 1988, I drove to State College, Pennsylvania to meet with Ivan Illich and spent a week there recording the lengthy interview that would become the basis for an idea series called Part Moon, Part Traveling Salesman and for a subsequent book called Ivan Illich in Conversation. I carefully prepared myself for this encounter by rereading all of the books Illich had written to that point. But when we sat down together, I found that he wasn't particularly interested in reciting what he had written in the past or in rehashing the proposals for social renewal that he made during the 70s in books like Deschooling Society and Medical Nemesis. Things had changed, he said, since he wrote those books. Sometime during the mid-80s, I'm now quoting his exact words, there was a change in the mental space in which people live. A kind of catastrophic breakdown of one way of seeing things has led to the emergence of a different way of seeing things. Today, he went on, people increasingly occupy a new, dimensionless, cybernetic space, and this space is discontinuous with the past, unconnected to the certainties by which people formerly lived. I was impressed by Illich's assertion, not least because much of my own work for ideas during the 1980s had put forward a much sunnier, less catastrophic vision of the coming age. But as our friendship grew and our conversation deepened, I came to share Illich's view that some sort of catastrophic change was in progress around me. Then, in the summer of 1997, and again in the summer of 1999, we found the opportunity to record a second long interview from which this series is drawn, in which we dwelt much more on how he sees the world today. The characteristic idea of the New Age, Illich believes, is system. Not system in the old sense of a system of thought or a system of bookkeeping, but system as the term came to be used in the new science of cybernetics, system as the comprehensive metaphor for the world of computers, genetic engineering, and the information revolution. The emergence of this new worldview marks the end of what Illich calls the age of instrumentality, the age during which our relationship to the world was primarily mediated by our tools. Using the word tool in its largest possible sense as any engineered, instrumental means, he argues that what characterizes a tool is the way in which it remains separate and distinct from its user. A system, he says, lacks this distinction. When Plato or when Plinius speak about tools or devices, we call them organon. We call the hand an organon, the hammer an organon, and the hammering hand an organon. The tool is an extension of the human body. In the 12th century, we notice, partly under Arabic influence, that an increasing awareness appears that certain material objects can incorporate, can be given human intentions. That the intent to perform, to do something, can pass from the hand into the hammer. That the hammer can be seen as something made for hammering and the sword something for killing. No matter if the hammer is taken into the hand by a craftsman or by a little girl or by a mill. It's that way that in the 12th century we begin to speak about it. And the sword 
can serve for killing or for war making, no matter if he who touches it is a noble born to the sword or any peasant trained to a sword. It's something which is characteristic, I believe, for the epoch, which I claim comes to an end with the 80s, is this distance, I use the term distality, between the hand, the operator, and the instrument which performs the task. This distality disappears again when the hammer and the man are conceived of, or the dog and the lash of the man, as a system. You cannot anymore say that there is a distance between the operator and the device, because according to systems theory, the operator is part of the system within which he operates and regulates. So long as there is what Illich calls distality between the tool and its user, the tool can incorporate the user's intention, whatever it may be. Tools exist at our free disposal, as means to whatever end we appoint for them. This is not true, he thinks, of systems. Systems incorporate us in the purposes for which they were designed. We act within the system's parameters. The significance of this change lies in the way it shifts our understanding of ourselves and the world. When the world is conceived as a vast, interconnected system, extending from the microscopic realm of the cell to the macroscopic systems of the biosphere, the ground is cut out from under us. A system has no ground and no external standpoint from which we can observe or influence it. The computer offers a ready example of this shift. During little more than a generation, it has become the primary metaphor for self and world awareness. Just as the wheel once suggested the wheel of fate and the book the book of nature, the computer now suggests a cybernetic world image, the world as network, the world as ecosystem, the world as genetic text. And this new image fundamentally changes the self-understanding of human beings. We no longer stand with one foot outside the world as tool users, readers of the book of nature, or persons with an eternal destiny. We've become part of the system. This change in worldview is often hailed as a return to an older, more organic conception of human beings, as a re-embedding of the body in nature. Illich vehemently disagrees. He sees the system's view as abstract and disembodying. For him, it moves away from the sensual body of old and into a purely theoretical realm that is inaccessible to our senses. This disembodiment, as Illich understands it, poses a deep threat to personal relationships, because for him, it is only a suffering, embodied persons that we can turn and face one another. The example he has used as his touchstone throughout this series is the gospel story of the Samaritan. Jesus tells this story in response to the question, Who is my neighbor? It concerns a Samaritan, a foreigner, who is moved by the plight of a Jew who lies beaten up in a ditch beside the road and who goes out of his way to take care of the wounded man. What is important about it, in our present context, is the emphasis Jesus places 
on what the Samaritan actually felt when he faced the injured Jew lying in his path. The Gospel says in that story, he felt moved in his belly, his entrails. The Greek word for this is splanchna, that part when you sacrifice an ox to a god, you put aside as impure because there's too much shit in it. The non-noble parts of the sacrifice. Now, the Samaritan felt touched in his innards, which would be probably the most respectful way of saying it in English. He felt this sense of this ease in his belly when he looked at that Jew. That beaten up one provoked in him a bodily sense of this ease. This this ease was a gift from the other. He understood that this guy was in a state of misery. I carefully avoided saying in need of something. Through the attribution to myself and to others of needs, what I can give is that need satisfaction. And that really doesn't have to be personal. That doesn't have to come from me. That most probably comes with more effectiveness, efficiency and competence if we call in the right professional or let the right agency do it. We are therefore in a situation of, in which the disembodiment of the I-Thou relationship has led into a mathematization, an algorithmization, which supposedly is experienced. What I consider during the last couple of years, the main service I still can render is to make people accept that we live in such a world. Face it. Not try to humanize the hospital or the school, but always ask, what can I, at this very moment, in the unique nunk now and here in which I am, do to get out of this world of need satisfaction and feel free to hear, to sense, to intuit what the other one wants from me? would be able to imagine, expects with a sense of surprise from me at this moment. The other, for Illich, is always unique, particular, unrepeatable. He is this Jew in this ditch, on this road, not an instance of a social problem to be solved or a need to be satisfied. Need, risk, problem, are all categories that tend to disembody the relationship between the Samaritan and the Jew. They imply a planned and administered response, not that gracious, free, undue, inward stirring which provokes the Samaritan to take his traditional enemy into his arms. During the modern era, Illich believes, Samaritan agencies of various kinds have been the typical response to perceived social needs. But today, Illich says that he senses a growing disillusionment with this type of social outreach, and as its corollary, a resurgence of that free, anarchic spirit in which the original Samaritan acted. One index of this disillusionment, he says, is the changing meaning of the word responsibility. 
responsibility as a moral obligation, as a feeling which should influence ethical judgments, appears, you can look it up in the Oxford English Dictionary and its supplements, and you have to look very much into the supplement, is something which appears at the beginning of our century. Twenty years ago, even ten years ago still, but let me say twenty years ago, among the people with whom I usually deal, it's of course a very peculiar type of people, it was impossible to question that their responsibility for those children whom they saw in the ads of the children's fund with hunger blown up bellies were their responsibility. They were scandalized when I talked to them about responsibility being the soft underbelly of fantasies of, about power, that the responsibility they felt was a way of justifying their sense that we, because they were from a rich country, we have some power to plan, to organize, to change the rest of the world. This responsibility, this ugly justification of blown-up power fantasies, is something about which, from experience I know this, during the last few years, I can make people laugh. Laugh about themselves, that they fell into this trap. A new sense of impotence is around. The future, which seemed something appropriable in terms of planning, designing, policy-making, the very idea of policy-making and policy-execution, is receding very fast. It finds still, still expression with U.S. bombing Milosevic or Gaddafi or uh, Iraq into the recognition of human rights of its own citizens. It still nourishes the new book by Rostov about the need of maintaining American police power worldwide as a condition for the survival of democracy. But the people who speak to me, different from those who spoke to me of the way they spoke to me 20 years ago, do recognize that there is a fallacy, that the world in, which, in front of which they stand, not the future world, but the present world, is built on assumptions for which we haven't found the appropriate names yet. I speak with people who are beginning to understand that the language about the organization of power, prevalent between 50 and 80, has no hold on reality anymore. And no matter if they are people who come from an attempted philosophy of power structure, let me say Michel Foucault, or if they come from the Rostov corner. When 25 years ago, to his face, but with people, I argued that in spite of my great admiration, Foucault assumed the existence of something, namely power, along the lines 
along which, after 1840, the idea of energy was socially constructed for the physical world, and power being something metaphorically corresponding in the social domain, people considered me evil, David. The recognition that we cannot help but renounce power, not because of a Gandhian or Christian spirit of renunciation to violence, but because the power which we sought 10 or 20 years ago reveals its own void, its own illusory characteristics. This new feeling of impotence, of a void where the power to change the world was once thought to be, is for Illich the characteristic experience of the new age. The world now confronts us as something unmanageable, as a complex, chaotic system of which we can never form a comprehensive view because we are inscribed within it. Such a world, Illich believes, gives rise to strange compensatory fantasies and reassuring rain dances which hide our helplessness. We dream of a return to earth, a rebirth of mother nature, of ethical capitalism and global citizenship. But these fantasies, he says, only distract us from our fundamental powerlessness. Illich suggests a different path, a return to what he calls conspiratio. The conspiratio was the kiss by which the early Christian communities mingled their spirits and sealed their communion with one another. It was practiced at a time when Christians still sought to imitate their Lord's absolute refusal of power, a time when the Church had not yet made itself into the prototype of the modern state. To Illich, it symbolizes the way of love without power, free, self-giving love that meets no need and expects no guarantee, the love that stirred in the Samaritan's belly when he saw that half-dead man lying by the road. This way, Illich says, has reopened as the modern project of underwriting love with power has failed and the modern institutions in which this project was embodied have ceased to inspire faith. The credibility of the world constructed with the idea of citizenship of responsibility, of power, of equality, of need, claim, and entitlement. The credibility of these as ideals for which it is worthwhile to consecrate your life is declining, in my opinion, very fast. Most people see this as a serious danger, which it is, to the survival of a democratic order. I want to suggest the possibility of seeing it as the end of an epoch, just like the Roman Empire, at the time of Augustine, and as an entirely new access, credibility, ease of moving into the world of conspiratio, knowing that it can't be contractually assured, insured. A renunciation to insurance.
You're listening to Ideas on CBC Radio 1. I'm Paul Kennedy, and tonight's program, by David Cayley, is called The Corruption of Christianity. I believe, Ivan Illich once told me, that the future is in the hands of God. I cannot let anybody ensure either the material or the spiritual future for me. I know I live in a world where the greater our ideals are, the greater the insurance companies will become. Historically, this has already happened, and this includes especially the churches. They are insurance companies taking the place of Christian virtue, the virtue of loving." Renouncing insurance on this view means renouncing the substitution of institutions for the virtues that they supposedly make more efficient and reliable. And this is what Illich, in his own life, has tried to do, not just as a writer and lecturer, but as a teacher and friend. Nearly 40 years ago, when he was still a practicing Roman Catholic priest, he wrote an essay called The Vanishing Clergyman, in which he suggested the abolition of a professional clergy and its replacement by a lay ministry. At the Center for Intercultural Documentation in Cuernavaca, Mexico, which he founded in 1960 and which continued until 1976, he presided only on the basis of what he once called unquestioned influence and not through the exercise of any managerial power. Since 1976, he has worked at the margins of various universities, accepting only temporary appointments and always trying to create a hospitable space outside the institution for his students and colleagues. I usually trusted that people who seriously follow a semester or several semesters in a row would also become guests around my table and find out by themselves the way I tried to proceed. First of all, this is not easy because the university, particularly as this institution has developed, has changed during the last hundred years, has become almost an enemy to the type of procedure, collegial procedure, which I've tried to cultivate. Yes, I have made my living out of the university. I've soberly milked that sacred cow in order to nest with the handouts I could get since I left the rectorship in Puerto Rico, which is now 37 years ago. I've never accepted a normal university job but only a semester at a time at different institutions, or as one institution is now in Bremen for the seventh or eighth year, in Penn State for the twelfth year, providing with with the wherewithals to have a hospital table. A good tax lawyer found the way of making it credible to IRS that a certain number of cases of ordinary but good and clean wine are my major teaching tool and can therefore be written off from taxes. Illich's approach to teaching and to university life generally 
was to cultivate friendship as the most important condition for the disciplined pursuit of truth. Friendship, for Plato and other classical authors, was an outgrowth of civic life and was inconceivable without such a context. Politics, understood as a relationship between citizens, was what made friendship possible. Modern persons, Illich thought, are in the opposite case. For us, who lack a city in the Greek sense, friendship has to come first, and civic virtue only as its consequence. Friendship. Symposion, which means drinking together. In the Greek city, could be conceived of as the flowering of civic virtue, as the crown of the practice of civic virtue, because virtue could be understood as the appropriate behavior, the fitting behavior, within the context, the ethos, befitting the ethnos, ethics, the environment of that place at that time with that given tradition. For Plato, I'm taking Plato, but I can take any classical text of antiquity, friendship presupposes an ethnos, the environment into which my nativity has placed me, Friendship, in the old sense, was based on the presupposition of the limits within which it can be practiced. Friendship today, I at least, have not been able to seek as a flowering of a neighborhood life that has not been my destiny as a wandering Jew and as a Christian pilgrim. But if there was an ethics which developed around the circle of my friends, it was the result of our practice, our search of friendship. We stand here, therefore, in front of a radical inversion of what philia friendship could mean for Plato and what can mean for me. For me, it is the source of possible coming about of a context of like-mindedness and of commitment. Well, for Plato, it could be the ultimate result of the practice of something which befits the citizen. This inversion in which ethics are founded on friendship rather than friendship on ethics is, in Illich's view, thoroughly Christian. It was Jesus himself, he says, who disrupted the traditional basis for ethics, both by the example of his crucifixion outside the city's walls and by his teaching about the Samaritan's freedom to love beyond the limits established by his culture. Again comes that major disturber and fool, that historical Jesus of the Gospels, who says the Samaritan, the Palestinian will be the only one who will act as a friend towards a beaten-up Jew. He opened a new, unrestricted ability to choose whom I want, or to let myself be chosen by who wants, 
for friendship. When I speak about the cultivation of friendship, I try to understand how after Jesus' disruption of the frame that limits the possibility for friendship to appear, I can see one aspect of the history of the West and of the Church as the creation of new voluntarist chosen forms, lifestyles within which friendship can be practiced. And certainly the monastic ideal, the history of monasticism in the West is one of the roads, if not the most privileged road, to explore how changing social conditions, changing thought patterns, have changed the ways in which people tried to create lifestyles within which friendship of freely chosen others can come to flower, and how around it some kind of community can grow. Monastic community was based on a life that integrated work and worship, meditation and mutual commitment. And by the light of this example, Illich thinks, we can see what the modern university has lost. Knowledge has been divided from virtue, the head from the heart. Illich doesn't dream of a restoration of these traditions, but he is inspired by them, and he has tried, as a scholar, to repair the rupture between academic study and the mutual commitment of friends who follow this life. I saw it as my task to see in which way intellectual inquiry, loving truth, the disciplined and methodical joint pursuit of clear vision can be so lived that it becomes the occasion for the kindling of philia. Let me use the word philia instead of friendship because it has such funny implications today in different modern languages. How, therefore, it would be possible to create truly, deeply committed human ties on the occasion and by the means of common investigation. And second, how precisely the search for insight, I'm using the word because search for truth, many people whom I deal with make them smile, or you sit back somewhere in an old world, I do. How the search for truth can be pursued in a unique way precisely by being conducted around a dining table around a glass of wine, and not in the lecture hall. However, for the lecture hall, the public forum, whoever offers me a chance for it, when I was younger, I grabbed it, can serve for bringing people together who then say, may the three of us come to see you. And I say, yes, but why don't you come when the other two whom I would like you to meet are also there? Therefore, integration can immediately happen. So my, my idea was that in order to search for truth, the growth of philia is the presupposition of it. This philia must find an atmosphere in which it may bud, 
and cannot be assumed to be the outgrowth of civic virtues. It must be very carefully non-restrictive, always a candle lighted, with the certainty that there is somebody else who will knock at the door. And the candle stands for him or her. God knows who comes to the door. In order, however, to give to friendship, that is, to the growth of an open group of people who are moved by fidelity to each other as persons, and, and dare to maintain fidelity even if the other one becomes a heavy burden. If truth is pursued with the presupposition that it starts from a we which is arbitrary, which is unique, which cannot be put into any class. I speak of a we, the I, first person, in the plural, something which slowly emerges. If the search for truth is based on the creation of the we, we have to shed a certain number of university, academic forms of appropriateness, etiquettes, or even disciplinary and methodological convictions, which are very sticky. Because it is to be assumed, I know it from my experience, that people who are truly committed to risk such a route of research will already have, in my generation, people born after 1925, will already have had considerable what they call socialization within a university and academic milieu. Not all, but many of them. The university is oriented towards disciplinary gatherings. Therefore, the conviction that here only that can be of importance, which I can share at least with some others, whom I love first and then want to talk with, has a considerable impact on the way how I have to review my own insights to put them into ordinary language. The practice of friendship, which Illich has just been describing, is a possibility that he thinks has opened up for people in a new and surprising way during the last generation. This opening has occurred, at least in part, as a consequence of the decay of institutions like the university. Earlier he spoke of a whole complex of related ideas, like responsible citizenship, that he believes have lost credibility in a similar way and are now in decline. With this fading of the institutions that have structured modern life, Illich believes, a new access has been created to what he calls the world of conspiratio, the world that existed before that seminal period in the high Middle Ages when the Roman Church made itself into a sort of modern state in embryo. But this in no sense implies a return or a stepping back into an earlier time. The events that have changed our world have changed it forever, 
and Illich would be the last to argue that what is past can provide us with consolation. Indeed, the image of him as a historical romantic prettying up the past and crying down the future is probably the most prevalent misconception about his thought. It is Illich's view that the waning of the credibility of modern institutions brings Christianity before us as never before, and this for a paradoxical reason. Modern institutions perverted faith, but they also prolonged its presence and held back the consequences of its disappearance. It follows that it is only now, in the sunset of these institutions, that the world we have actually made can finally come to light. We live, therefore, according to Illich, in an apocalyptic time, a time of revelation. He made this clear when I suggested, near the end of our conversations, that we might now be living in a post-Christian world. His rejoinder was sharp and decisive. Declining confidence in modern institutions, he said, expresses not the end of Christianity, but the unveiling of that mysterious evil that came into the world with Christianity. This evil was identified by the writers of the New Testament as Antichrist, an evil that they claimed would ripen within the church as the intimate and ever-present possibility of a betrayal of the gospel by those who would falsely claim to speak in its name. The Antichrist, in other words, was precisely that perversion about which Illich has been trying to speak. Only now, he says, its consequences lie fully revealed. I do not believe that this is a post-Christian world. That would be consoling. I believe that it's an it's so difficult to pronounce the word. It's an apocalyptic world. At the very beginning of our conversations, we spoke about the mysterium iniquitatis, the mystery of evil, the nesting of an otherwise unthinkable, unimaginable and non-existent evil and its egg within the Christian community. We then use that word antichrist. The antichrist, which looks in so many things just like Christ, teaching global perceptions, universal responsibility, humble acceptance of teaching instead of finding out by yourself, guidance through institutions, the Antichrist, or let's say, the Mysterium Iniquitatis, being the conglomerate of a series of perversions by which we try to give security, survival ability, independence from individual persons to the new possibilities which were opened for the Gospel by institutionalizing these. I claim that the Mysterium Iniquitatis has been hatching. I know too much of church history to say, and that's now breaking the shell. But I dare to say that it is now more clearly present than ever before. To call this therefore, or to Ascribe to me the idea that this is a post-Christian area would be completely wrong. And I'm certain that you asked the question only 
to provoke me into this. And I listen to what I just said, slightly angry response. I believe this to be, paradoxically, the most obviously Christian epoch, which might be quite close to the end of the world. The imminence of the end of the world has been a Christian belief from the beginning of the Church, and it has always been seen as mandating a life of detachment. Christians, St. Paul says, should be in the world, but not of it. Medieval Christians symbolized this condition by taking as their emblem the mythical figure of the flying fish, a creature both in and out of its element. Renunciation was the sign that one could do without the world, even as one lived in it. And renunciation, Illich says, is today more crucial than ever as a way of preserving the capacity to love and be free. Renunciation has been from the beginning the logical precondition for the practice of love. I think I would start a little bit too high if I began now to speak about Jesus' absolute request that if you come from solid, middle-of-the-road, practicable Judaism into his little sect, you renounced the freedom to separate from your wife. You renounced an opportunity which the Jew had. It's probably the symbolic way you usually would discuss this. You renounce to the need of belonging to the we in which you find your I, the place outside of Jerusalem, Golgotha, where the cross was put up, became the symbol of it. You renounce to the powers of changing the world, which you did in the temptation that Christians very soon discovered, that little practices of renunciation, of what I won't do, even though it's legitimate, of a necessary habit I have to form in order to practice freedom, not only to be poor, but to practice freedom. What a beautiful, happy, innocent world it was when people could find joint renunciation in not eating chicken soup on Friday. I still remember that world. It, it wasn't European during the Second World War because we weren't chicken around. It made no sense and one forgot about it. But when I came to New York and found out that people really were concerned of not eating meat on Friday, it taught them, if they really wanted to eat six weeks of Lent, to give up something which is hard to them, to give up other things. I remember my boss on the first days of Lent, which I spent in the United States, and we sat down for breakfast, and he was as grouchy as anything, and I asked him twice, Sir, did I do something wrong? No. Did I offend you? No. So I kind of said, Do you feel badly? Yes. It's Lent, and I've given up smoking my cigar. Well, a funny way of punishing me for his <laughs> renunciation. But I love to think of it, because the things which, in the modern world, we can give up. And not give up because we want a more beautiful life, but because we want to become aware of how much we are attached to the world as it is, 
and how much we can get along without it. These things have multiplied so much that you can't easily give a social shape to them. Some people will give up writing letters on a computer, not because it's bad, and not because they don't like to be called upon to give an immediate answer for a letter which they got, email, and other people will give up the services of physicians. Or as somebody whom I know who has practiced it, having children of whom he guarantees that they'll get degrees. The certainty that I can get along without is one of the most efficacious ways of convincing yourself, no matter where you stand on the intellectual or emotional ladder, that you are free. Renunciation, self-imposed limits, are the basis for a practice that prepares people, perhaps even politically, to discuss what kind of limits do we want to impose on ourselves as a group of two, five, twelve friends, or perhaps as a neighborhood. Realizing that we can do that, realizing that we can practice renunciation, I have seen, I can witness to it for the last 15 or 20 years, is for many people who suffer from great fears and sense of impotence and depersonalization, a very simple way back to a self which stands above the constraints of the world. A contemporary practice of renunciation, Illich says, is the opposite of mortification or asceticism or any of the other terms one might associate with ideologically founded self-denial. Rather, it is a precondition for enjoyment, for a sober joy in those things within my personal reach. By renunciation, we open ourselves to what Illich calls gratuity, the spirit in which we receive a gift. And it is in this spirit of praise and thanksgiving, he says, that he hopes to live. Since I live in this world, I couldn't find a better world to live with those whom I love. And those are exactly people who overwhelmingly are aware of the fact that we are beyond the threshold, who are not anymore so deeply imbued by the spirit of utility or instrumentality that they wouldn't be able to understand what I mean by gratuity. I do believe that there is a way of being understood today when you speak about gratuity. And gratuity in the most beautiful flowering is praise, mutual enjoyment. And what some people, such as those who propose a new orthodoxy, discover is that the message of Christianity is that we live together, praising the fact that we are where we are and who we are. And that contrition and forgiveness are part of that which we celebrate doxologically. With praise? Yeah. I have no more questions. Thank you. Do you have any more answers? Mm. I hope nobody takes what I said for answers.
On Ideas Tonight, you've listened to the fifth and final program of The Corruption of Christianity, Ivan Illich on Gospel, Church, and Society. Tonight's program was produced and presented by David Cayley, with the assistance of Richard Handler. David Cayley is also the author of Ivan Illich in Conversation, published by House of Anansi Press. Technical operations and studio direction were by Dave Field. Associate producer, Catherine Hughes. Special thanks to Yuta Mason for her help in the preparation of these programs. You can order a printed transcript of this series for $25 and a set of five audio cassettes for $39.95. Write to Ideas Transcripts, Box 500, Station A, Toronto, Ontario, M5W1E6. Or by email to ideas at toronto.cbc.ca. You can also call area code 416-205-7367 and order by credit card. That's 416-205-7367. The executive producer of Ideas is Bernie Lucht, and I'm Paul Kennedy. Please stay tuned now to CBC Radio 1 for the hourly news, followed by The Arts Today and Between the Covers.